0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast with a recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. A little more than two months ago, a buddy of mine who happens to be a chef whispered in my ear that a new TV show from FX was about to drop on Hulu and that I absolutely positively had to watch it ASAP. When I asked why, my chef pal said... It's the first scripted series in the history of television that really, truly gets it right about what goes on in a restaurant kitchen. Now, kitchens are, in fact, or should be, a rich and fertile milieu for drama or comedy. A bunch of people crammed in tight quarters under constant deadline pressure, racing against the clock, communicating with each other by means of a unique and fascinating patois you will hear in any restaurant kitchen, and therefore an atmosphere overall ripe with esprit de corps, but also rife with competition and barely concealed resentments fueled by hierarchies of race, class, gender, and the degree of mastery of the history, theory, and practice of gastronomy, an environment further that in recent years has become notorious for fostering, tolerating, and ultimately rebelling against an all-too-common culture of abuse verbal, and physical, in which countless imperious, wildly assholic prima donna cuisineers have treated those working under them as subhuman serfs and sometimes targets of sexual objectification or gratification. And yet, the restaurant kitchen also a habitat that can create a profound sense of camaraderie and connection among those who work at any restaurant, from the most exalted Michelin three-star to the humblest local diner, each of which observes on at least a daily basis the ritual known, not for nothing, as family meal while simultaneously producing, for those of us who consume the food these people put on our plates, an ungodly amount of pleasure, satiation, and yes, joy, the joy of a delicious meal perfectly and lovingly prepared, which, when everything goes right, is just about as satisfying and sublime an experience as anything this mortal coil has to offer. So, (laughs) yeah, you you could say I was intrigued by the idea of a TV show that, quote, got the restaurant kitchen thing right, But I was also more than a little bit dubious given the long and dismal history of TV shows and movies created by artists of great talent that labored mightily, tried valiantly, and failed utterly at the task of capturing the actual reality as opposed to the iron chef, top chef, master chef, mind of a chef, reality show, unreality. To be perfectly honest, as I sat down to watch the show in question, mysteriously and somewhat oddly titled The Bear, I was basically prepared to be disappointed as I hit play and started episode one. And then, well... Something unexpected, thrilling, and even magical occurred. The bear reached out and grabbed me by the throat, pulled me in, and refused to let go for the next four hours. The total time it takes to watch the eight half-hour episodes, more or less, that comprise the show's first season. At the end of which, my heart pounding and swelling at the same time, tears streaming down my cheeks, fully wrung out, strung out, and blissed out in equal measure, I was possessed by three thoughts. One, my God, what a show this is. A beautifully written, exquisitely directed, gorgeously acted, mind-blowingly shot, light, dark, comedic, dramatic, plain-spoken, poetic, real, surreal, salty, sweet, spicy, ineffable, little televisual miracle, too. Yeah, sure, it gets restaurant kitchens right, but oh, so, so much more than that. Life, death, grief, loss, addiction, redemption, the way that family breaks us all in one way or another, and also how it makes us whole, the beauty of the quotidian, the nobility of grinding it out against the odds, the preciousness and elusiveness of time itself, and not least, the essential and irreducible spirit and soul of the city of Chicago. And three, I gotta watch this thing again right fucking now. As listeners of this podcast are only too aware, I have a very high bar when it comes to TV movies, books, music, and other forms of popular art. But for those shows or films or albums or whatever that clear the bar, I am a shameless and unabashed enthusiast. But given that my tastes at times can be eccentric, or at least very particular, there's always a chance that I'll fall hard for something about which the rest of the world will go, huh? Say what? Eh, no. But that was not the case with The Bear. Within days of the show dropping on Hulu and after watching the series all the way through, not once, not twice, but three times, I am unembarrassed to say, I sent a series of frantic, wild-eyed, gushing texts about the show to a bunch of friends. 50 people? 60 people? 360 people? I mean, I don't know. I was in some kind of bear-induced fever dream, and I quickly lost count. And I also posted effusively about the show on Instagram. And all I will say about that is that in my entire life, there has never been a cultural artifact that I've gone apeshit for and recommended heartily where every single person I reached out to got back to me almost immediately saying basically the same thing. Holy shit, you're 100% right. And thank you for turning me on to the bear. If you've been paying any kind of attention to the world around you these past couple months, you know that those reactions weren't outliers either, as the Bear by common critical and popular consensus has turned out to be the show of the summer, unleashing countless glossy magazine profiles and think pieces, innumerable Twitter memes playing off of the kitchen lingo in the show, and TikTok videos parodying or paying homage to it, such as the instant classic, making box mac and cheese like we're in the bear. Go check that one out. And a Sahara desert's worth of online thirst for the show's lead character, Carmine Berzato, and the actor who plays him, Jeremy Allen White, of which my personal favorite illustration is a story in Bon Appetit with the headline, Everybody's horny for the sexually competent dirtbag line cook. And it's all thanks to FX as the bear. All of which brings us, finally, you're thinking, to this week's episode of Hell in High Water, which I have been hankering after and hungering for as if it were one of Carmi's Italian beef sandwiches. And in case you're wondering, I'll take mine hot, piled high with jardinera, half dry and half dipped, please and thank you, in which we go deep and long on the bear with the aforementioned Jeremy Allen White, best known for his 10-year, 11-season run as Philip Lip Gallagher in Showtime's classic series, Shameless, and the show's creator, Chris Storer, a longtime collaborator with Bo Burnham, including on the heralded film Eighth Grade and the producer and or director of some of the best and most original comedy of this era, from the Golden Globe-winning Hulu series Rami to stand-up specials with the likes of Hasan Minhaj and Dan Soder. For a tiny but tempting taste of what lies ahead, take a listen first to Jeremy talking about the very modest aspirations that he and the Bear team had when they were making the show. And then to Chris Storer talking about what it meant to him to aim for verisimilitude when it came to capturing what restaurants are really like.
1: Chris and I, even when we started talking about it really early on, we were like, can we make something like authentic, right? Like that was the, that was like the, the goal. And I feel like we were like, if we can make something that seems true to this industry, then, like, that's a success in itself, and um, maybe we'll find, like, a niche audience and we can do more, and, like, that's success, you know? Um, I think it's gone, like, far beyond at least what I was um, imagining um, when we were making it, even though, as we were there, it was, you know, it was the best time, and, and Chris, you've said it before, and it's true. It, It felt like we were doing a really small movie. We were in our own little bubble.
2: I think we came at it from it's a really unpleasant, hard job and not the chef is fucking awesome and it's slow motion. Like, that's what we weren't going to do, you know? And I think knowing Daniel Patterson and Roy and, and being around some of these chefs, like, the and Maddie has the thing that he always says all the time too, that when you're a chef, winning is losing. <laughs> like, even when you're the most popular restaurant, you're, like, your problems just go up tenfold, probably like a lot of businesses. And I think... In the spirit of let's show people how hard it is, it was much easier to get into some of the ugliness and nitty gritty.
0: I don't want to waste another moment of your time with me blathering on and on about the bear, though, of course, I could go on all day. I will say that if you haven't seen the show yet, you might want to do that before listening to the podcast. Firstly, because are you not paying attention? The show is fucking incredible. And secondly, because the insights that you'll hear from Jeremy and Chris here will be all the more meaningful if you've experienced the bear first. I'll also say, as yet one more demonstration of our unequivocal, unequaled, and unrepentant bear love around these parts, the fabulous Zoya Saroy and the one and only Brennan the God Murphy, both staffers at the recount, knocked themselves out this week to create an epic, definitive, supercut, stitching together every time in the first season of The Bear that someone says the phrase, yes, chef which the Gen Zers around the office tell me has achieved such cultural ubiquity that people are saying it's the new Yes Daddy. The Supercut is delightful, it's hilarious, and you can find the video version of it at The Recount on pretty much any social media platform out there. But first, first, you get to hear the audio version right here, along with Jeremy, Chris, and me, at the very top of this very special All Bear All Day episode of Hell and High Water.
1: Don't wipe your hands on your apron, chef. Jeff. Chef! Chef. You stir that pot for me, please, yes, chef. chef! Did you take my knife, chef? Did you take my pot, Jeff? Broken sauce, Chef? Broken soft, chef. Yes, chef. Still not there again, chef. Yes, chef. Say yes, chef. Yes, chef. Say yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes, chef. I'm so tough. Fucking yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes, chef. I'm so tough. You are not tough. You are bullshit. You are talentless. Are you good? Yes. Yes? Yes, chef. Yes, chef. Yes. Chef. yes.
0: Okay, Chef. Yes, jeff Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Great. Yes, Chef. Oh, yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Shitty, but
2: better, Chef. Yes,
1: Chef. Heard, Chef. Yes, Chef. Chef. It's right here. You can have a taste. It's right here. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. 45 minutes to open, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. Yes, Chef.
2: Yes, Chef.
1: Ready to go. Sorry, Chef. Sorry, Louis.
2: Yes, jeff Thank you. Yes,
1: Chef. Marcus, if you're still fucking with those donuts right now, I'm gonna fuck your day up. You hear me? Yes, sir. Fire everything yes, chef. right fucking now! Yes, sir! Yes, 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 Get out of my fucking way! Ebra, make sandwiches! Don't stop making fucking sandwiches! Yes, sir! A bag, Sharpie, label that shit, please, chef! Yes, sir! Yes, sir! Yes, sir!
2: We are not good. What? We are not good, chef.
1: No? Yeah, chef. Yes, chef. No, chef. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. Thank you. Yes, yes chef. chef. Thank you. Dessert drop. Yes, chef. Say it back, please, chef. Thank you, Jeff. Please,
0: chef. Chef. <laughs> uh, yes, claps. Yes, the creators seem to be well-pleased by this <laughs> latest example in the culture of uh, the intense, obsessive love for uh, the bear. That was our uh, recount supercut of every use of the phrase "yes, chef" in the first season of uh, the hit show. That kitchen lingo is now, you know, all over the place. It's like "yes, chef," "heard chef," uh, "corner," "behind." All messed this stuff from the show, uh, you hear it all the time now. Sometimes not even connected to the show. And, uh, and and speaking of the show, we're more than more than pleased. We're thrilled and delighted uh, to have two of the guys responsible for all of it. The creator of the show, Chris Storer, and the star of the show, Jeremy Allen White here on the podcast. And I have to tell you guys, since the day first time I watched it, I was like, I met that Jeremy Allen White guy a couple times at Showtime. Things. And Chris, Chris Storer, like, you know, I mean, I'd heard that name, but I, I couldn't pick that guy out of a lineup. <laughs> They're coming on this podcast because I I have not I have not I've not been like I am I'm an enthusiast. When I find shit I love, I go in hard. But I haven't gone in this hard on a TV show in a long time. And um, I mean, I I know you guys have been congratulated by everybody except for the Pope, basically, about this show. But um, congratulations for the show because it's really fucking special.
2: Uh, That means so much, man. man. Thank you, We're so pumped to be here. I think it was interesting. We were just talking about it. Like, you were one of the first people to really reach out and tell us how much you were digging it. And I think Jeremy and I were both kind of like, whoa, it's out there. Because we shot it so fast that all of a sudden people were watching it and it felt kind of crazy. Yeah, we were checking in on each other a lot. In those first (laughs) first week or so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I remember texting the thing, the way the way I knew it was special, because sometimes I love shit and I'm just just me, you know, I'm eccentric. But I probably sent text messages that first weekend to like fifty people. And I was like, If you have you should check this out. And like every person wrote back to me within a couple hours and were like, I just watched the first episode of the show. What the fuck is this? This is incredible. I'm gonna watch the whole thing now. And I don't think anybody of the 50 I wrote to didn't come back to me afterwards and thank me for recommending the show. It was like universal. So, here's what the the reason I played the Supercut is to just start at this point, which is we're just talking about it came out of nowhere. We didn't know what it was going to be. And then all of a sudden it went crazy. It's now like, you know, a phenomenon. And I just wonder how you guys are relating to that. You made this little show about chefs and now it's like part of the lingo. You hear people say, yes, chef, and heard chef who maybe never even seen the show or know what it's about. That's how pervasive it is. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think like, I don't know, like Chris and I, even when we started talking about it really early on, we were like, can we make something like authentic, right? Like that was the, that was like the, the goal. And I feel like we were like, if we can make something that seems true, to this industry, then, like, that's a success in itself. And um, maybe we'll find, like, a niche audience and we can do more. And, like, that's success, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it's gone, like, far beyond at least what I was um, imagining um, when we were making it, even though as we were there, it was, you know, it was the best time. And, and Chris, you've said it before and it's true. It, it felt like we were doing a really small movie. We were in our own little bubble. Um, FX was really wonderful and kind of being... I mean, from 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 my standpoint, Chris might have a different story, but like they were pretty hands off and and let us do what we yeah. wanted to do and, and trusted Chris and and everybody.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, with the Yes Chef thing, I don't know. I don't know how you felt, but like I was a little scared at first when it became a part it's of terrifying. the vernacular because there is like um, there is respect in that you know? And like, I took it very seriously. Like when I was studying, um, to go shoot the show and I was like visiting kitchens and stuff. I don't know. I took that all, I took that all very seriously. And like a lot of respect went into like how I approached, um, this space. Um, so when, you know, uh, people really started like, like talking about it and like not making fun of it, but like making jokes with it and stuff like that, I got kind of like, uh, I don't know, there was like a bit of a pit in my stomach at first because I, I didn't want to be like um, insulting the actual industry in any yeah. in any way you know what I mean you, you,
0: but you yeah. didn't imagine that when you uh, first learned that that yes chef was a sign of respect as as, as Carmi says in the show I say mm-hmm. yes I say chef because it's a sign of respect. you didn't yeah. think it would immediately be, it was an obvious thing that would be translated as a uh, replacement for yes daddy. You know, like people's people's sexual, sexual, sexual vocabularies, but here's, I mean,
2: John, that is, that is the thing like Jeremy, like, you know, Jeremy and I, before we started shooting this, we would, we would take walks and just be like, man, the coolest thing would be if we got even like 50% accuracy on, on some of the chef stuff. And as the show came out, the thing that was really special Was, you know, cooks and people that worked in every part of the restaurant were reaching out and saying, you know, this part or this part really fucked me up or this part really felt special. And then I felt like it turned because then you start to get into meme territory and all that shit. And when you're making the show, Jeremy's right, like FX were the best partners, truly, because I think especially when they started seeing the show, I think to their credit... They were like, "This is pretty thoroughly what it is. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no middle ground. Like, this is pretty yeah. much what. Like, this is aggressive and and really what the the filmmaking team wanted this thing to be." So, right. Our, Jeremy's right. Like, our level of success was like, if we get to do this again, like, if we could do season t- two, that's like everything. And then, sure enough, it sort of turned into something else.
0: If you're making something creative, you don't imagine that it's gonna. You don't ever have any imagine imagine it's going to become uh, a phenomenon, right? You know, no. I know you think, Chris, that that you're you're correctly, your life has been changed by this, Jeremy. Like you had a long run on on Shameless and are a successful mm-hmm. actor, but I think you're in a different place now in people's terms of consciousness. I never saw the kind of, you know, glossy magazine focus on you, even in 10 years on a very successful show that you've gotten just over this summer. Right.
1: I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, I, I feel very lucky. Like I live a pretty, I live a pretty quiet life, so I'm not that bothered, like in sort of like walking around. Um, and, uh, and so I haven't, I haven't noticed like that that shift in, in that series of a way, like I can get a table at a restaurant quick, which is always like nice. Um, mm. but outside of that, like I'm not getting bothered or anything too much. Um, but certainly like, um, I've, I've, I've gotten to kind of like step into rooms with, with writers and, and directors that I've really admired for a long time in these last two months that, um, I don't, I don't think I would have been in that room, um, prior to the bear having had come out. Um, so so yeah it's um it's all very surreal it it all seems to have happened uh very quickly but if I'm being honest like um yeah I uh I think I'm I'm kind of in a position that I like dreamed of of being in for for some time and and so I'm feeling very very lucky and and, and grateful for it yeah
0: Well and you're not on Twitter right No you're not no. on Twitter you're, neither of you is on Twitter I got to say this is it's like though for both of you for Jeremy more than for Chris it's a good thing. I think you should stay yeah. off Twitter. Don't go on yeah. Twitter, yeah. Jeremy. Yeah. Like I it'll, won't. It'll, I'm not going to do it. It'll get. It'll get. It'll get weird for you really fast. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, Heard. yeah. Get, We've
1: got a group re- chat on the. Uh, yeah, it's always on like, the, uh, the 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 cast and stuff. You yeah. know, what would be funny, John, yeah, You get... like
2: try to stay away. You try to stay away from it, and then like Maddie. Maddie is in Canada, so he's ahead of us, and he'll send me something, and my phone will go off at 6:15, and I'm like. Motherfucker! Why did you just send me this crazy
0: shit? Well, I mean, look. I mean, like, why, why is he sending you crazy shit? Um, he's sending you crazy shit because he's Maddie Matheson. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know who Maddie is, uh, he's a heavily tattooed and extremely boisterous uh, chef based out of Toronto who uh, served as the culinary consultant on the Bear and plays uh, a, a character in the show. Actually, also a candy man by the name of Fack. Um But look, I want to. I want to. You know. Chris, I want to get down to some nitty gritty with you about this because there's a lot of reasons people love the show. Um, and there's a lot to how you guys built the reality of it and the verisimilitude of it. But the, the reason that people I think have been have been so attached to the show is that the, is there's this enormous emotional resonance in it. Everybody gets very kind of caught up in the humanity of it. And I think, Chris, I think as I've now watched the show like 900 times and, and read everything that's been written about it, I think it owes a lot to the fact that a lot of the material, and this is something I did not know until I really got deep into my bear psychosis, a lot of this material is drawn from from your own experiences, yeah. uh, from from you know from wanting to be a chef yourself at one point in your life, uh, yeah. to having a whole bunch of connections and ties to the food world. Plus, you know, there's the addiction stuff and the suicide stuff, which we can can talk about. But really, there's a lot in the show that is like lifted directly from. Yeah, uh, the Chris Store experience.
2: I had always wanted to do something in the restaurant world, and it was like a movie at one point. And as we started, as we sort of made the decision to make it a TV show and started developing it with uh, FX, the world was changing so much. Obviously, whether it was covid or and and you know i know you feel this way too which is like sometimes i just feel like we live in hell every day and it's like never ending sort of some form of bad news every day because a lot of my friends owned restaurants and i saw a lot of my favorite places just close and disappear and there was something ghost-like and in deathly to it that this form of grief sort of took over and as i started to unlock that a little bit i thought a little about a lot about friends that i lost in my life at a young age like when i was 20 um some some pretty good friends of mine but my best friends best friends got murdered at a college football game and it was this crazy thing that it was the first time i think a lot of friends in my circle had dealt with death so abruptly and and obviously happened to Uh, that had happened to young people was terrifying and mysterious and there wasn't an answer for it. And I think what I'm getting at is that some of this stuff added added up to a sense of lost time. And when I was trying to be a chef and when I was talking to my restaurant friends and my sister, who I should say is a chef, and Maddie, who's one of my best friends, time becomes this crucial thing in the kitchen. And whether you're in constant sort of awareness of the clock, but also you sort of lose uh, any any sort of real uh, grasp of what time <laughs> it is outside the restaurant. And I think to, to answer your question really clearly, like I'm someone that suffers from anxiety and depression, and I have my whole life, and, and I've worked on it, and I think one of the things I've found is that I often mask it by overworking myself or perhaps taking on too many projects to sort of not deal with it when the truth is it's going to pop back out Somewhere, you know, and I think when we knew we were going to be making the show with Jeremy and I had a strong actor that could sort of convey that without saying a lot that we knew we were going to build up to it. It was I have sort of really found a great vessel to sort of get into, yes, a restaurant story, but also something that was really highly about anxiety and, and depression.
0: Right and and also I mean just to come back to this I um, mean you know I because you've talked about this elsewhere I wouldn't necessarily raise it but you know your mother was an addict your father was an addict someone yeah. in your life someone close to you killed himself these are all yeah. these are all important yeah. components of the show right I mean I Yeah
2: and I, it was interesting too because I think you know my dad's been sober now for 25 years which is incredible and I think like even I think it took a lot of uh you know like courage to, to for him to cuz i think he also suffered from anxiety and i think as is uh as some as like being a little kid through that you sort of don't understand how it's happening and it takes a while just like anything to grow up and sort of look back on it and and sort of deal with it more and i think my way of dealing with it was like Alanon was very helpful to me and you know and i and i think i had never seen it really uh portrayed in a show and i also think it was cuz i think sometimes in shows when you see like an addict or um, someone suffering through that, it usually unlocks a plot point or, you know, some, and I and I think the thing that we wanted to focus on here was that it was, when you go to Al-Anon and, and you, sort of, you sort of start thinking about what your role in the addict's life was, you sort of unravel other things that perhaps you weren't aware of and I think having Carmi go through this journey to only realize that like, well maybe he just really wanted the love from his brother and he tried to do this thing for all the wrong reasons only to find that like his brother really did love him and he just kind of misunderstood what was happening. So that was kind of a, definitely a journey that I've gone through personally. But even, you know, with Maddie and, and Courtney, the more we would talk about uh, just cooks in general and restaurants, I had found part of the reason why I was so drawn to people that worked in restaurants and not to generalize, but just my friends that I had met that owned restaurants or were cooks they sort of had a similar familial background to mine and found something comforting in the chaos of a kitchen.
0: I guess the most blunt question I could ask you, do you think the character is mostly you? Is it really autobiographical? I mean, is that you? You know what's
2: weird, John? I think to answer super honestly, I think I'm a little bit of all of them, obviously, but the part that is definitely in Carmi that it's something that I've always worked on is I priorly I think was not a great communicator and it's something that I've always worked on and I think I think um where I'm definitely carmy is that moment of not not perhaps being great at explaining the way that you feel to to somebody else because maybe you haven't explored that feeling and can't articulate it.
0: Here's my question for you Jeremy. So you start this process, you 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 know Chris said you guys took these walks where you go and talk about like what this what from this, from an actor standpoint, from your actor standpoint, mm-hmm. someone who'd played Lip Gallagher, who was a not totally dissimilar character um, mm-hmm. from from this character, like what are the, what do you want to know? What are you trying to get out of Chris on those? I don't mean that these aren't like they're both collaborative conversations, but there's yeah, also totally. like, what am I trying to get? What am I trying to learn from this conversation that I'm going to then internalize and incorporate, and that's going to then be core to the, what the character ultimately is.
1: Yeah, so during those those like coffees, which were which were so nice, and we did even before we shot the pilot, I think I was just um, I was like really like detail oriented, probably too much. So like I, I should have been a bit more like trusting of of kind of like my gut, which was when I read the script, um, my heart broke for Carmi, and I, I just feel like I had a, a pretty pretty thorough understanding of him but i got really wrapped up and like i was like where's mom um did he go to the funeral what was the funeral like like all of these sort of like um these details that that end up being sort of like i don't want to say unimportant but um but unimportant in a sense um very
2: important at the same time dude like because it was helpful to me i mean that was helpful to me yeah,
1: yeah. I mean it was helpful, I think, to get it out there yeah. and for us to just like have have conversation about it. But like I mean we we did find that moment I think we we talked about Carmi not going to Mikey's funeral on one of those walks. And I was like, Whoa, that's that's serious. Yeah. And you were like, Yeah, but we're just like we'll mention it once and we'll just like let that speak for itself and I thought that was like a really daring um thing to do especially because it's in the pilot like you know hopefully you're you're going to be interested in in watching carmen and everybody else you know for a whole season but you have sort of your protagonist of of the show you know openly admitting he he didn't go to his his own brother's funeral that's um that's like you're you're taking a real chance with the audience
0: you know It's sort of like david chase putting in uh tony soprano killing that guy with a with the piano wire in the, in the pilot, not waiting until like the, whatever was, right. the fifth or sixth episode, yeah. it's like a bold move, you know, like, man, right. I just hate the, hate this yeah. guy so much. Yeah. And, and so, and when you came to it then, what did you think, like, if I had asked you before it ever aired, you mm. said, I'm playing this guy, uh, Carmen Mazzotto and, yeah. and, and, and you outlined the plot, you know, he's the brother and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, okay, what's mm. this guy really about? Like what's what's the core of him in your mind like what is he about um, what would you have said
1: yeah I mean I think Carmi you know what what I found really interesting about him is is uh, was sort of his loneliness you know um he he's gotten so wrapped up uh, in this profession um his identity is is just like so uh completely wrapped up in being a chef and and being I think like a a really excellent one and his sort of like um, own life has, has taken a a backseat to this, this career choice. Um, And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think he's like, um, when I think about Carmi I think about, I think about struggle. Um, I I feel like he, he has a difficult time communicating, um, but he does desperately want to connect. um, And I think, I think like that's that's what I found sort of admirable about him, and what do I what I kind of I, I love about him? It's like he he doesn't have the tools, um, but he so desperately wants to um, to be present and 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 be connected, and it's interesting to see him him trying and and, and failing. You know. So, yeah. so Chris, I mean... here's
0: my he, he, but here's where I want to go with this is to this thing that you both have just referenced in different ways, right? Which is the thing one of the things I'm most obsessed with in storytelling, which is specificity and how important specificity is, right? So as I would describe to people why I was obsessed with the show, I'd often be like, well, it's the first show that's ever gotten kitchens really right. And that's what all of my chef friends say. And that I think from what I know about kitchens, I think that's true. And I'm curious with you about why you think Chris, why is, why is it such a hard nut to crack?
2: Well, first and foremost, man, you are looking for trouble and there's something in, because like, again, like so truly, so like uh, so many of my dear friends are chefs and own, you know, restaurants and and bakeries. And and I think so many of them were like, you better be real careful. Like (laughs) that's not, not that, not that it's impossible or, or you can't figure it out, but there's so many things in it that are kind of really tricky to explain or perhaps boring to an audience. And I think... I think the way that we started talking about it was like, all right, we're going to try to be, we're going to try and get all these little details of what a restaurant does. Right. And we're going to try and like honor these people. And I think when you're coming at it with, like, I have so much admiration and respect for what these, for what these men and women do. I think we came at it from, it's a really unpleasant, hard job and not, the chef is fucking right. awesome, and it's slow motion. Yeah. Like, that's what right. we weren't going to do, you know. And I think knowing Daniel Patterson and Roy and, and being around some of these chefs, like, the and Maddie has the same thing that he always says all the time, too, that when you're a chef, winning is losing. <laughs> like, even when you're the most popular restaurant, you're, like, your problems just go up tenfold, probably like a lot of businesses. And I think in the spirit of let's show people how hard it is, it right. was much easier to get into some of the ugliness and nitty gritty. And I think, you know, one of the great things about working with FX was that they really allowed us to um, sort of jump in the middle of this story, like in, like truly, truly media res, like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, yes. because I think if we had tried to make a more traditional pilot, I, honestly, we would have been fucked because it would have been like, let's try to explain every th- how a kitchen works.
0: When I first heard that you guys had shot it as fast as you shot it, like yep. you were in Chicago, for Shot like seven episodes in six weeks, ish. It was thirty-one days. Okay, so so probably about about six weeks of of weeks and and like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically February and March. You guys like you 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 went out there fast, took over this restaurant, and and just banged for. And then you got back. You did a fast turn in post, got it up really fast. I was the first reason I loved the show before I watched a frame of it was when I heard that schedule because. You know, we circus people are like the quick, the quick, the quick turns. Like it will lead someplace good. Yeah. Um, In that context, how much of it's, you know, given how loose and I mean it's very tight, but also feels very uh, raw and dirty and 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 real how much of that is on the page and how much of it was improvised? Like here, let's, we want to create this chaos in a very precise way, or is it, we got to create parameters and then let the chaos kind of play in this. There were always, you know what,
2: John, the cool thing was just by the nature of being in a kitchen, you sort of just had inherent parameters. You know what I mean? Like it was like, well, Carmi's got to do this and Sydney's got to do this. And Richie's got to do this. Um, I think for Joanna and I, the, the co-owner Joanna, who's, the best and directed a couple episodes she the thing we kept talking about was like we're not word perfect directors so i was like kind of say whatever you want and and here to it jeremy does that sound right i can't even remember dude like I've, I've yeah i mean
1: i always i think i pretty much always stuck to script because because that's what i do um but um but but you did give everybody freedom and i know like Eben and io who are, like, really wonderful um, improvisers, would would go off sometimes and then come back to it. Like, I remember Eben would would try stuff that would get, like, huge laughs from everybody. Yeah. But he would try it in, like, a rehearsal, and then he wouldn't do it because he was like, I don't know if that serves the scene, maybe it gets a laugh, and I respected him a lot for kind of, like, having that superpower as an actor of, like, improvising and getting people really floored, but then also being able to, like, Pull it back and really asking yourself, like, does this serve the story? Does it serve the scene? You know?
0: Yeah. And you know, just just for the record, um, uh, Jeremy's talking about Evan Moss Backrack, who plays uh, Richie, who is was the best friend of Mikey, uh, the now dead older brother, uh, who has a complicated relationship uh with, with Carmi. And and the, the the very hard part to play, It uh, calls on Evan Moss Backrack to be kind of a flaming asshole. Uh, and yet, somehow, to emerge as a lovable figure over the course of the show, and he he, he kind of pulls it off. I will say, I don't know about about Evans' uh, abilities as a as an improviser, but I will say this: in the first episode of the show, there's a scene uh, where he confronts a bunch of uh, sort of uh, uh, game gamers. A, a bunch of yeah, I can't go into the plot of how this happens, but a bunch of gamers are gathered outside the restaurant, uh, uh, the original Beef of Chicago Land, the Beef, which is the name of the restaurant in the show. And they are dressed up, they're cosplaying, and and they look like a bunch of lunatics out in front of the restaurant. And there's a moment where Richie goes outside with a gun, shoots uh, into the air, and begins a speech uh, to them uh, to get their attention, where that begins (laughs) with the phrase, which I don't think is improvised, it couldn't have been improvised, it's too funny, which is, Merry Christmas, lizards. Um, sounds like we got a real problem out of here. Any of you incel, QAnon, 4chan, Snyder Cut motherfuckers want to get out of line now? And I will say, guys, uh, Jeremy and Chris, um, assuming that that was a scripted line, I sort of feel like uh, Renee Zellweger in uh, Jerry Maguire, like Renee Zellweger, you know, you had me at hello. And for me, it's like you had me at incel, QAnon. 4chan, Snyder Cup motherfuckers. That's like when I was totally sold on the show. Anyway, listen, it's it's like time we gotta get we gotta go make some money on this on this podcast. We've gone a long time without uh, taking a break, and it's time to take a break. So we're gonna take a break, uh, and then we'll be back on the other side of that break with with uh, Jeremy Allen White and Chris Storer to talk about the bear some more here on this all bear all day episode of Hell and High Water. And we're back on Hell and High Water with Jeremy Allen White and Chris Storer from The Bear talking about The Bear. Uh, I want to start this, this this part of the podcast off by playing a little sound from the show where, um, you know, one of the boldest things you did, Chris, and uh, you and, and your co-showrunner, Joanna uh, Kahlo, did was to basically plunge people into the show with no exposition at the top of it. It's like you dropped into the sandwich shop's kitchen where it's crazed and there's uh, there's all this... Uh, drama and intensity and craziness and there's there's people speaking a language that people don't necessarily understand. You don't know who the characters are, why they're there. There's no setup. I mean, it's a very bold sort of thing. We're not, I'm not going to do exposition. We're not going to do backstory. We're just going to ask you to go on this ride with us and carry you yeah. forward, yeah. audience. Uh, and and you took I had a lot of faith in the audience that they would be able to get through to stick with it in the face of this blizzard of activity and and no real context for it like you know these fast cuts of of, of, of photo <laughs> yeah. album shots uh, you don't know who the people are in the photo albums it's like. It's, it's, very, I mean, it's a very big gamble, and it really pays off in the show, and it really the, the faith in the audience has really paid off. The first time we get any real backstory about Carmi, who we know is this like world-class chef who's come back to Chicago by the end of the first episode, we know that at least. He's come back to Chicago to take over uh, the family restaurant that his brother was running until his brother killed himself. That much we know by the end. Of the first episode, I maybe even we may not even know fully all of that, but at the very top of the second episode, we get some backstory of what Carmy's life was like as a world-class, high-end chef in some restaurant in New York, like uh, Daniel or Eleven Madison Park. You know, it's like a, a temple of of haute cuisine. Um, so let's play that flashback. It is a traumatizing scene. We start to understand here some of what is going on inside Carmi's head. Uh, so let's play that and we'll talk about it, uh, when we're through. Why do you hire fucking idiots? Do you like working with fucking idiots? I'll do better. Say yes, chef. Yes, chef. Can you handle this? Is it too much for you? Answer me. I can handle it, chef. I can handle it, chef.
1: 12, 10, 36. Don't fuck with my count. 3,
2: 52, 14. Why are you serving broken sauces? Why? I get it. You have a short man's complex. You can barely reach over this fucking table, right? Is this why you have the
0: tattoos and your cool little scars and you go out and you take your smoke breaks? It's fun, isn't it? But here's the thing. You're terrible at this. You're no good at it. Go faster, motherfucker. Keep going faster. Why are you so
2: slow? Why are you so fucking slow? Why? You think you're so tough. Yeah. Why don't you say this? Say, yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes, chef. I'm so tough. Say, fucking yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes,
0: chef. I'm so tough. You are not tough. You are bullshit. You are talentless. Say, fucking hands. Hands! You should be dead. You should be dead. Short man's complex. Like, that's a fucking... I mean, first of all, did you feel like and who's the actor in that Joel McHale Joel McHale he was great Yeah. in that Heston Blumenthal meets uh, who I mean Gordon Ramsay meets I don't know you could make make up various inspirations for it so that's like a pretty good revelation of PTSD right where that comes like what's how and one of the ways that that Carmen's damaged correct correct Mm -hmm. correct and it's a, a, a oppositional thing of setting up what this what he wants the bear not to be right correct correct okay so, Jeremy, were you traumatized by playing that scene? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean Joel. Joel is really incredible. Joel very large. Um, he's a scary. He's a scary dude. Um, um, yeah, but yeah, I had a lot of trauma just reading that. I mean, but what, what did we come up with on the day? Joel came up with all the short man complex. Well, the stuff, thing, it then- was like the
2: short man's complex, but also the thing. To, like, really narrow it down, like, it, I think it says something maybe about me, but also I think, you know, Jeremy and I were talking about it a lot. It's like when someone's like that and they're not screaming, there's something about it that's so much Men- menacing. more menacing or terrifying yeah. where it's like, oh, man, because, like, I think if someone screams, it seems kind of nuts, but it's also kind of in your what you're like, oh, you're just clearly being an asshole or something. This felt deeper and darker and honestly more even interesting about their relationship that he's like trying to fuck up his count and you know I think throughout directing commercials and stuff I have found myself in various kitchens and I've whispering is a very real thing that I have encountered where kitchens like a lot of not to generalize but some kitchens I've been in I've found there is the sabotage and there is this sort of whispering that is chilling dude (laughs) like Mm. actually fucking
0: gnarly it's gotta be harrowing to anybody who watches it. And you're like, okay, this is illustrative of this kind of restaurant culture at these haute restaurants that are that is terrible and, and abusive and 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 patriarchal and all that shit. And then the third episode comes along, the next episode after the one we've seen that flashback scene to New York. And now we're we're back in the in the kitchen at the beef. And one of the characters we've been introduced to, who's Marcus, who's the pastry chef there, starts talking to Carmi about um, some crazy dessert that he's seen in one of Carmi's books. Uh, he has all these books from these fancy restaurants with these fancy chefs. And, and and there's this, this, this dessert that, that has caught his eye as being especially beautiful. And it has to do with plums. Mm. And so the conversation between Carmi and Marcus, uh, is what we're going to play right now, but it's important. Again, remember the traumatizing experience that, that we've just seen Carmi uh, go through in that kitchen back in New York. And now he's going to talk about a dessert that he made over and over and over again in that very same kitchen for that very same assholic chef that we heard in that last clip. So let's play that. Right, Orange okay.
1: chef. Yeah, totally. You know, it takes uh, 12 people to prep that. Wow. Yeah, I plated that every night. Hold on, 17, chefs. There's four sets of plum in that. What do you mean? There's a uh, plum wine. A wine? Yeah, it's a, uh, a sweet wine from Japan, and you take a shit ton of bottles of it and you just boil the fuck out of it. You just cook it, and you cook it, and you cook it, and you cook it until it becomes a uh, syrup. You know, it takes hours. Two shifts, two different people just watching that shit. Yes, chef. And then you have your plum consomme, which is uh, black plums cooked down with black vinegar, salt, sugar. Somebody's gotta be stirring that forever so the sugar doesn't burn. And then your compressed plums, which are these these perfect, fresh plums cut into perfect four centimeter squares that you cover with the reduced plum wine you made. You vacuum seal it. And then you take your consomme and you make your gelée. Fire, which uh, at this place, the chef wanted the gelée to be like the consistency of Haribo gummy bears, which we could never do.
0: So I'll, I'll ask you guys both to talk about this because... On some level, like understanding the duality of a chef who could be like both obviously highly traumatized by this experience and also talking about it with this reverential tone, like not yeah. not just the food, but the process. And you know, yeah. even he's he's almost venerating that guy who was abusing him in the way he was abusing him in episode earlier in the earlier flashback. That that duality seems like a really important thing to convey about Carmen.
2: Yeah, I think you know it's interesting because a lot of it I think a lot of it's, it's – I mean, it's a couple things. First and foremost, like I do think it says something about the cycles that we put ourselves in and there is some form of addiction to that. There is some form yes. of yeah. abuse to yourself or abuse to other people that looking back on, you're like, God damn it, that was really fucked up. But you're like, I did my best work and that there's something weird and perhaps I liked it. I think it was also a way for me – going back to like how much of this is personal, like while I was never a Michelin chef, like I've definitely – had partners that were perhaps intense or something, or acted in a way that was maybe not okay, but did our best work come out of it? Yes. And when you look back, you're like, man, are we? Are do you need those kinds of people to do your best work? And I think that's a question that perhaps Carmy's dealing with internally. But when there is that thing that sucks, no matter who you are, where you're sort of like there was an achievement in that you know whether it was for the wrong yeah. reasons or or whatever you're you know like it, it's sort of the you know one thing i'm always interested in is if you meet a alcoholic or a drug addict that's creative or an athlete or whatever and they're like am i good at this thing because of the addiction because of the abuse. And if I don't have that, will I not be good at it anymore? I mean, what'd you think, Jeremy? Was that
1: like, I think that that was like totally, um, I mean, I think it's really important to the story, which is this, this question of like, you know, how, how do you run a kitchen best? It's, it's a question I asked a lot of the chefs that I, I I worked with, you know, um, some of them came up in sort of a, a a different generation of, of, kitchens. Um, I think, you know, like so many industries in these last couple of years. You know, there's there's been a, a, a huge shift in the kitchen industry and how, how people are treated, but I was working with chefs who were coming up in this industry when I think it was a little bit more, or could be a little bit more volatile and hostile. Um, and I'd ask them, I'd say, you know, <clears throat> would you ever treat your staff the way that maybe a chef treated you? And they'd say, absolutely not. And I'd say, you know, uh, do you think you would be as good as you are if it weren't for your chef treating you that way and there would be kind of like, you know, a big pause, um, you know, th- they don't want to do their staff any disservice, obviously, um, but they also don't want to be abusive. Um, and yeah. I think that's a question that, that that the show asks, you know, like um, what does it take?
2: It's again one of the questions of the show, which is communication it's like obviously yeah. you're screaming because you can't figure out a better way to problem solve and I think like you have Carmi that's trying to do these things differently only to find in episode 7 he sort of becomes the thing that he doesn't want to be but right. maybe he's also looking for that like Jeremy said this thing on one of our walks John Jeremy said this thing that was so interesting of like you know because we always kind of had this baseline thing in, in his performance yeah. like you know he's trying to fix this thing for, for all the wrong reasons you know but what if there's a part of them that's like no maybe I want to burn this fucking thing to the ground Right. and the minute it's like a lot of things the minute you know I, again like I, I've I've challenged myself to, to try to not be like this so much like the minute that there's any sort of minuscule thing going wrong like oh well this was supposed to happen now we're all fucked yeah. and, you know Screw I it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think like in episode 7 there is this moment where he's like oh well now this is a good opportunity to just explode and ruin this thing Totally, he takes that opportunity. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So I'm I'll just quickly step back and and I ask you guys about the arc of your two careers, Jeremy. Let's let's start with you. And you know, with Shameless, as I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, you know, you were in this widely acclaimed show on Showtime for ten years. You know, eleven seasons. That's a long time. And I think about about Lip Gallagher. People love that character. And people loved you in it. But man. You grew up on TV like the way uh, Ron Howard grew up on TV. Not quite like Opie <laughs> yeah, Taylor, but you were like just out of high school when you got that job, right?
1: Yeah, 18, like a couple couple months out of wow. high school. That's right,
0: yeah. So now fast forward, um, you know, you've just left the show. And I know that you had at least some reticence about taking this part because in some ways it was a little bit too similar to Lip. But, you know, they're both brilliant Naturally gifted kids in dysfunctional working-class Chicago families, right? And and I mean, they're not carbon copies of each other, uh, Carmi and Lip Gallagher, uh, by any means, but superficially they're not, you know, radically different from each other. But then the writing just kind of won you over, at least according to other things I've read that you've said. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, that's.
0: But what was it like to be? I mean, ten years of like at the end of this, at the end of doing Shameless. Yeah. your thought was what comes now I've been on a show for 10 years and it's mm-hmm. dominated my professional life and mm-hmm. so I want to now go do what
1: um like directionally I I... you know like actually yeah, not, no, like,
0: no. not like you know like what part but like directionally. Yeah, yeah. I want to be like yeah you know
1: yeah I don't, I don't, I really don't think I, I don't think I knew. Um, I, I think there was a part of me that was like, it's kind of that thing that actors say, which is like when they're on a TV show for a long time, they're like, I want to try and get some film work, but I don't, I don't really believe that. Like I find (laughs) television to be like such a, an interesting place and, and like oftentimes more interesting than, than film, at least today, you know? Um, so I think I was excited about the idea of another show Um, but I think the only thing when, you know, Chris was telling me about it and when my agents were telling me about it prior to uh, having read it was they were like, it's in Chicago and there's kind of like, you know, this like family aspect and tonally it's like drama and it's also comedy. And so I think just getting told about it, I was like, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure. That just sounds kind of close. Um, but then, but then, yeah, I just, I read it, and, and, and Carmi was, like, so rich. The character was so rich. And and not just Carmi, but, you know, every character on the show was so well kind of thought out. And, and as I got to read more, and, and they, they sent me, you know, the what ended up being the entirety of the, the first season, um, I just felt really lucky to, to not only have, like, a, a good story for, for, for Carmi and a nice arc for Carmi, but I really feel like every every character on the show sort of has their own, their own journey and there's like attention and specifics. Um, So, yeah. yeah.
0: So Chris, you know, then there's your career Um, and you know, it's like sort of hilarious. Uh, You hear people go, my God, Chris Storer, he's got this great new show, the bear. It's his first show and it's such a huge success. And it's so incredible. And, you know, um, if you know anything about your actual career, you're like, mm, no, that guy's been in the business for, you know, more than a decade. And, and he's made some, some really good, uh, shows and uh, made some really good stuff, uh, particularly in television, uh, you know, working, uh, with the, you know, genuine kind of genius, Bo Burnham, um, directing a couple of Bo's specials, you know, you've done a bunch of stand up comedy, uh, things you work with, like great with Chris Rock mm-hmm. and, and with, uh, with Hassan Minaj, who's been on this program before. And, uh, and our friend Dan Soder, friend of the circus, official, uh, actual blood relative of the Mark best. McKinnon's on the circus. Uh, the Soder's great, just fantastic. Um, and you've done all these other things, you've done these various things, right? So one of the questions I asked you in text the other day, I was like, of the things you've yeah. done, what we could talk about outside influences in a second, but of the things you've worked on, where do you kind of, what do you point to and say, these things informed the work that became the bearer? There's the clearest through line yeah. or inspiration line. And the three things you cited, Homecoming King by Hassan, uh, eighth grade movie that you made with Burnham that was like a yeah, beloved award-winning movie, and then you know Rami, you know which is uh, yeah. a show that people it, it's incredibly well thought of show. It's a you know Hulu show. It's been uh, it's won uh, for its stars. What what a Golden Globe well thought of show that kind of grapples with uh, the the challenges of being a young Muslim. Uh, in America, and kind of uh, the it's a it's a show really about religion and culture and growing up as a kind of outsider uh, because of your religious beliefs and your and your affiliations, especially in America. Right? You think about those things, right? Uh, you know, uh, eighth grade, the things you cited, right? Eighth grade. Uh, Homecoming King uh, by Hassan, and then Rami, Um, and you know, try to try to connect the dots as to why it is that that those three things are kind of not just revealing about your work, but also kind of how they throw towards the bear.
2: Yeah, yeah. When I worked with Hassan on Homecoming King, it was about communication and think like he was sort of processing anger he had about growing up. It, and like the what he realized was racism at a young age and how can he do that in a fun way which is like talking about something really heavy but also making it really really funny and really sharp and i think as his friend i was getting to learn about him and learning about how he was struggling to maybe communicate some stuff that happened in in his childhood and the same goes for eighth right. grade like Bo wrote this movie about a girl. That's struggling to communicate with her father and with her the people around her, but was really also about the internet where there's too much communication. And then you so all these things kind of tied into be like Rami talking about his religion and being confused by that and not being sure who he could talk to. But the three things they had in common was that like we produced them all in really small ways with with our team that sort of led up to the bear. And we sort of found this weird kind of coming-of-age sweet spot whether or not you were 13 or, or 35. <laughs> and I think in The, the Bear, all, like I think all the characters are struggling with communication in some form but also are growing up in some ways or having to face things that they didn't uh, deal with previously. Um, so I do feel like weirdly all of those things kind of built into the, the DNA of a, a, a loud restaurant show.
0: It's interesting. Just uh, did coming. You think that the, you think of the bear as being in some way a coming of age show.
2: One hundred percent.
0: Just I, think, I know yeah, you yeah, started think, it. Yeah. Jeremy, how do you? How, well, I'm asking Jeremy first, just because I want to hear what yeah, you, yeah. why do you think that's true.
1: Why do Jeremy? I think it's true? Yeah.
0: Why do you think it's true? I want to hear what, how you think of it that way. That that's the case.
1: I mean, I think at least like in in Carmy's journey uh, on the show, he's really. By the end of the first season, he's understanding himself in a new way. And when I think of sort of like a coming-of-age film, I think that's that's really what it is, like a perspective change. It's like you understand yourself and the world in a different way. And Carmi, certainly, from the beginning to the end of the first season, his perspective is, has changed.
0: Yeah. and it's interesting because I go back again to Lip now because, of course, his whole arc is a coming of age arc. I mean, he literally, literally, is coming of age over the of those yeah, ten yeah. years. And I, I again, for the sake of a little tiny bit of sound, I want to play two things. These are I love these two things because they're if you want to talk about the way a character grows. Here's two things in a row of Lip Gallagher. One uh, where he's just come out of rehab. This is about kind of midway through uh, the show's evolution. And this is like Lip Gallagher at his most puckish as he goes walking into the local bar. Hey, I thought you were in rehab. No, no, i released on my own recognizance.
1: Well, should you even be in here? I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have to drink, I just uh, enjoy a cocktail or two at the end of a long day. But I got rules now. I don't drink before seven. I don't drink on an empty stomach. Always hide the car keys. Give someone your phone so you don't make any embarrassing calls. No more than two ounces of alcohol in an hour, no more than 12 in a night. I get two beers per AA chip, one shot per chip, and a Boilermakers three chips. And uh, it's seven o'clock, two beers, please. Oh, and uh, can you get me an eight ounce glass of water? I gotta stay hydrated.
0: So there's a so there's the uh there's one version of lip Gallagher in his relationship to whether relationship to alcohol and then you know we get to uh season nine of the show almost at the end and uh this is a very different kind of scene a very different kind of lip a very different attitude of lip Gallagher towards uh the question of alcohol and it's a it's a a, a moment when he uh has to confront Fiona a family member over a situation where she has wrecked mm-hmm. someone's sobriety and it's mm-hmm. had devastating consequences. And this is like one of the most intense scenes in the whole 11 seasons of, of Shameless for Lip Gallagher. 100 days he was sober, Fiona.
1: Who? Jason. My sponsor. Who? Jason from the shop. I'm his sponsor. You just got my sponsee fucking drunk. He didn't say he was your...
0: A hundred days! He
1: was sober! When he left you, he called his dealer and he shot up heroin. I'm sorry, I didn't
0: know. The show tonally changed over the years, and, and you know, in general, sure. I'd say, but but yeah. certainly the character goes from being kind of a light comic character to being a much more dramatic character, and mm. and and again, I note alcoholism, drug abuse at the kind of center of the Lip Gallagher story, for sure, uh, and now in a different way um, at the center of of Carmi's story. It's like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be too reductionist Affected. about it. Yeah. I don't want to be too reductionist yeah. about things, but there's there's some connective tissue here that allows you I think some access to that character given all the work you did in that Shameless house over the course of a decade
1: for sure yeah I mean I went to Al-Anon meetings when I was 18 19 um in preparation for Shameless because of uh you know um Frank Gallagher Bill Macy played my my dad on Shameless and um and yeah uh you know I didn't have that really in my household growing up and and I was curious and 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 so i i went into those rooms and 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 i and i tried to uh i tried to understand i tried to understand for lip um but then you know it's interesting like it's weird doing a show for that long because um you're you're always like shifting. You're always change, like just like life. You know, um, it's like such an interesting exercise as an actor because you get to live with character for so long. But it is so much like life, where like one day, you know, you get a script and you like learn this thing about this character, and they're like, "Oh, now you know, now he's an alcoholic." I know that wasn't the plan when you you were you know signed on, but now this is a thing, and and um, and so yeah, it's like a weird. Um, it's, it's a weird kind of journey to, to go on, but it's, um, it's, it's a lot like, like life too, which I think shameless at the end of the day, because it was such a long running show is like, it's just slice of life. It's just watching these people kind of like exist and grow up, you know,
0: one of the things I read getting ready for this podcast, I saw you saying that one of the things you did to get ready for the part to prepare to play uh, carpet was that you watched over and over and over again, uh, the movie Panic in Needle Park, which is a 1971 movie, um, interestingly a movie a screenplay written by uh, John Didion and and John Gregory Dunn. and it's it's Al Pacino's first leading part, uh, and he plays a heroin addict, and it's a pretty scary movie. Um, and but but you were like that was one of the touchstones for you that you watched again and again and again, right? Yeah, I did. Which yeah. again, not not an obvious. I mean, again, not to me because I'm dumb, I guess. I mean, a great, great performance, but not something I'd be like, oh, that's the obvious connect. There's somebody who I would study to go play Carmen. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, um, yeah, there was just something about his energy. It wasn't anything that was that like specific or like comparable even in the, in the characters or their sort of like situation or environment. But there was just something about his, his sort of like energy in that film that that I, I don't know, it seemed it seemed appropriate for, for, for Carmi.
0: Meanwhile, Chris, while Jeremy is kind of obsessively, compulsively watching Panic in Needle Park, uh, watching Al Pacino shoot up uh, to prepare, you're... I'm watching Terms of Endearment on repeat. <laughs> yes, and you're, yes, you are. You are watching um, this kind of incredible array of things that runs from, as you, as you have said, Terms of Endearment over and over again. The whole world of James L. Brooks, but particularly yep. taxi the first uh, half Mary of Tyler Moore one of Taxi. Yes, Mary. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, obviously, it can actually like Panic in the Middle Park and Mary Tyler Moore Show. Those like you know, birds of a feather, right? More in common than uh, you
2: think, man. <laughs> ra-
0: round, rounders and the Pope of Grand, the Pope of Greenwich Village. Two mo- yeah, movies those. We,
1: big, I watch those a lot too. That yeah, we
0: both. That, that yeah. we, but we all love. Everybody loves. I hate to say yeah. it because whenever you say something like that, Brian gets a little like twitching. You know, he's like right now his ears are burning. He's gonna. I'm gonna get a gonna get text. <laughs> we're talking about rounders. Again? Just like
2: someone just said. Yeah. You well, said I mean, rounders. it was still. So- well, Rounders specifically, man, because – now I, I'll, I'll talk more about it than that I'm not talking to Brian. Like the, the writing in Rounders <laughs> yeah. obviously is fantastic. But yeah. to be hyper-specific, there is a moment in Rounders mm. where Matt Damon's playing with the police officers and that weird thing. And it's that first moment where he says, like, these guys are real sweet. And they say the nicer the guy, the worse the carpet. And these guys are real sweethearts. And yeah. then you hear off-camera Edward Norton say – that's a hell of an elk, and you
0: just know that it's all going. So actually, actually, wait. Let's just let's stop here and let, let's play the scene <laughs> you're talking about, Chris. Uh, real yes. quick, it is cool to listen to because it's so specific. Yeah, uh, such a specific reference point for you here. Um, th- this scene in Rounders, uh, you know, the story of these two card sharks. Uh, uh, one is a good kid, Matt Damon. One is a bad kid, uh, Worm, played by Edward Norton. And Matt Damon is sitting down at a card game uh, to hustle a bunch of sheriffs. Uh, having told uh, his fuck up friend and and, and fellow card shark uh, worm that worm can't come along because you know basically he's too volatile and he'll blow it for both of them, uh, and so he's in there and while like this this is what happens and it's it's the thing you're it's the thing you're talking about. Check it out. All right,
2: you and me, Mike. Another forty. All right, forty it is. Mm. I Generally, that. the rule is the nicer the guy, the poorer the card player. And these guys, despite being cops, are real sweethearts. I'm right on schedule, up 4,200. The morning can't get here soon enough. <laughs> Holy shit, that's a hell of an elk! <laughs> and I was like, that is the, some of the most phenomenal character writing. Mm. in a movie ever and Norton's delivery of it is just so beautiful that I kept thinking about the relation of those two in relation especially with Carmi and Richie Richie and the bickering but they still love each other even though they make each other nuts and <laughs> and strangely a lot of that stuff is in a lot of terms of endearment and the maritime worshipship and taxi
0: right. <laughs> So the so for you the, the rounders thing is the connection between Richie and Carmen. That's the the it's the characters' relations. Is that what you're saying? 100%. That's what you're from that. And, that's, and that's, just
2: that's, and very very quickly establishing characters because you know like they're, like you know who those guys are right off the bat. Like, you know yes, who everyone right. is on Taxi right off the bat.
0: Right, and and I loved your description of Taxi as a room with there's about another room with six people yelling at each other. Which I mean, some of the best television shows in history. That's what they are. And more broadly, you know, the whole James L. Brooks thing is particularly interesting because I know you're obsessed with him. And what I hear in all of the lot of these things, in addition to, there's two things. One is like everything is a workplace drama now. I mean, not not now. It's always been right. The workplace as a place for comedy and drama to play out is like these like how you make it go right. And and that's what he was kind of well. Brooks was a master of a lot of things, but Certainly a master of the dynamics of workplace comedy and drama. You know, I mean, on top of Taxi and The Mary Tyler Moore Show, um, you've got, you know, Room 222 and Lou Grant and Rhoda, all these kind of, you know, incredibly iconic TV shows from that era. And of course, then, you know, in film, you've got Broadcast News, one of the great workplace comma dramedies, uh, dramedies of all time. And, you know, so, I mean, Brooks's resume, it's just like you go through it all. It's just mind boggling. And then the other thing is efficiency. How do you get to know these characters fast? That's a lot of yeah. the stuff that you were focused on as you, as I look at the list of things that you've cited, there are things where like characters are established very economically, uh, qu- quickly, economically, and powerfully. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, when you look at, you know, one of the things that John Landgraf told me about the show when we were developing it, which was like really the smartest. No, and it seems kind of simple, but he said, you know, f- from an audience's point of view, it was something to the effect of people really like being tethered to a place. Now, sometimes that yeah. results in like a workplace or sometimes that results, you know, in, in like, a you know, what, whether it's a school or whatever. But in the case of the show, when we tested the pilot... He was like, man, people really understood this, even if they didn't understood it, understand it, because the place meant so much to the people, and that was such a like beautiful way in for these characters and a way to get them to get to get to know them quickly. And I think part of why um, Jim Brooks was someone that I really like clung to in, in in the writing was, of course, he was efficient, and of course, you know, he could do a lot with a little, but also it was this thing where a lot of people were struggling to express how they were feeling which was which led to some of the central conflicts in a lot of the episodes or movies that he that he made like particularly in terms of terms of endearment when a mother and daughter don't clearly are not speaking the same language but still love each other and i think that vibe was something we were trying i was really trying to get into the show as much as possible
0: and i mean as an example of all the stuff we're talking about you know efficiency establishing character quickly and clearly characters struggling to communicate with each other uh, you know, uh, yelling at each other, <laughs> uh, to show what you're talking about here. Let's play this scene from the first episode of the bear, uh, between Carmi and Richie, Richie, again, played by Evan moss Backrack. um, a super important relationship in, in the show. And this is like really one of the first important, really the first important scene between these two characters. So let's listen to it. And then we'll talk about it on the other side.
2: Listen, I'm trying to talk to you. Okay. Don't be rude and start doing a million things like a smartass. I don't ever have time time to take care of your mom for six months. No, don't you fucking! I got all kinds of receipts from my divorce lawyer, backing up because all the
0: time i am spent trying to put your family back together because you're too much of a cocksucker to come home. The guys are texting me. You're telling them to do all sorts of weird shit backwards. Don't fucking do that, Carmen. This is your brother's house, okay? Yeah, remember? I was running it fine without you. Why didn't you leave it to you then? I mean,
2: those dudes, man.
0: But I mean, it's like, I'm not, I'm not wrong to say that like the efficiency of the scene work there, it's like, you don't really know who these people are at that point in the show. It's only about halfway through the first episode. And like I said before, there's been no exposition. You watch that scene. You're like, I know this guy, Richie, just on the basis of the, the accent that he uses when he says the words backwards, which is like really a Chicago tell incredible <laughs> voice that Evan had there and just the relationship and the way that Carmi shuts him down. That's it in one yeah. scene.
1: I think that was Evan's first. I think that was his first day of shooting. No,
2: I think it was his first day. I think it might've been his first. Sh- first scene, scene. Maybe,
1: maybe, maybe I'm just like, um, no, but he, there was a, there head. was also,
2: I mean, it was great because first I, I, John, I think that scene only works. I, I like, Jeremy and Evan were thrown. And then like Lionel coming at the end is just the three of them are, are truly like spitting fire. But the, there was a moment when Richie, when Evan improv, like, he's like, don't go, you know, doing shit backwards. He's like an ordering weird manhaze was like the, fun. like, there was like this moment that he had a couple <laughs> yeah. weird, he like kept, uh, he kept messing with that. But it was so great knowing that these guys could do that because they like in a different, you know, I'm not sure with different people we would have been able to go to that volume, you know, cause that's pretty quick in the, the episode too, John. And I think you got to be on the ride to sort yeah. of handle these guys screaming at each other like that.
0: You, you decided, I mean, he's very Chicago and most of these characters are very Chicago. Jeremy, you have no Chicago accent. Um I think there's a reason for that, but talk about like being, you're the character in this show who's not having to do, Chicago in the way that basically all the rest of them are. Is that yeah. something something to do with him trying to like run away from Chicago basically his entire adult life?
1: Yeah. Like I think I think I tried sometimes with Eben, to, like when we were getting really heated with one another, I was trying to like mimic him a little bit with the accent because I feel like Carmi would kind of like fall into it a little bit. But yes, exactly. Like I think Eben or, or Richie rather – you know, he takes so much pride in like where he's from, how he sounds. I think Richie almost like, um, exaggerates, you know, his accent, you know, he like probably doesn't even have that thick of an accent, but he's just so proud. Yep. And, um, and Carmi, I think, yeah, he's just been running away, um, for, for a couple of years. And, and he he doesn't have the same sort of like uh, pride in 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 his environment and where he came from. Um, so so yeah, I think he probably actively tried to lose his accent when he was traveling and working in different restaurants.
0: There's about a hundred things in this show. I would say that if you're not from Chicago, they would make no sense to you whatsoever. Like I mean, maybe not a hundred things, at least a dozen. Right, right. Um, there are references like. Really, like almost offhanded references, like jokes about Carrie Wood, and then there's, you know, an inside joke uh, about about Jeremy Piven, uh, uh, an actor uh, born in in Chicago, uh, but not beloved in Chicago uh, in the way that most Chicago native sons are beloved. Uh, and the joke is is buried in the show in such a way; it's just a passing reference, and you might miss it no matter what. But if you happen to catch it. You know, if you're not from Chicago and you don't know that people from Chicago like hate Jeremy Piven um, uniquely among famous people from Chicago, you would never get it. You know, it, like really, and there's a, you know, it's just you would never even really understand the joke. But this one, uh, though, people do know, even if they're not from Chicago, which is, you know, the hot dog thing.
1: Which uh, box you put the ketchup in? Hmm? The ketchup, which box? I don't bring ketchup. Why don't you bring ketchup? What kind of asshole is going to put ketchup on a hot dog? A child, Richie. Child asshole. You're a child asshole.
0: I mean, truly, every person I know in Chicago who has ever lived in Chicago, like, was texting me about this going, these guys totally understand Chicago. That's like that. that <laughs> and they all are on Richie's side, too. It's like, oh, oh it's it, so funny.
2: Well, I know how controversial it is. I, You know, look, man, if you want to put ketchup on your hot dog, go right ahead. I, oh. But if you go to, like, Gene and Jude's, you ask, I've been there when a couple people have asked for ketchup and they are scoffed at.
0: To put it oh, or life. thrown out of the re- or thrown out <laughs> of the restaurant. <laughs> How do you? What do you, do you just go?
2: Do you go Chicago style, John?
0: Just the everything? I I do. I'll put uh, yes. The appropriate. Um, mo- never ketchup. Always mustard. Appropriate is salt, the best. Celery salt. Celery salt. Relish. Yeah, the pickle. The the pe- the the peppers. The sport peppers. Uh, yeah, I'll do the whole thing and tomatoes and raw onions. Everything but ketchup. Yes.
1: Did Did it's anybody good. go to the wiener Circle when we were there?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, it, you know what? It was, yeah? it was. It was. It was. Uh, they renovated it. It's all different inside now. out.
0: Well, listen, I, I haven't been back to the Wiener Circle since the pandemic. Uh, so it may be different in terms of the decor. Uh, but I got to say, you know, knowing the nature of that place, I can't imagine that it's changed really that much at its core. You know, for, for anybody who doesn't know, Wiener Circle is a legendary hot dog spot on North Clark in Chicago. It's open late, real late. And and the, and the ladies at the counter, they they will let you have it. I mean, they will they will lay into you <laughs> in some incredibly profane terms, like you know, way like swearing, like not just sailors, but like the most profane sailors you've ever imagined. If you order your hot dog the wrong way, and I will say, as I sit here now taking a quick peek, if you go to the website um, for uh, for the Waiter Circle, the first thing you'll see in big black letters is "What the fuck do you want?" and welcome back, bitches. So that suggests to me that, you know, hopefully the wiener circle is still the old traditional wiener circle. Uh, and if it is, thank God for that. Anyway, um, we got to take another break here and then uh, we'll come back to talk some more with the Bears, Jeremy Allen White and Chris Storer here on Helen Highwater. High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Uh, we're here again with uh, Jeremy Allen White and uh, Chris Storer talking about the bear. And listen, um, you know, as we were just getting ready to do this podcast, I'm sorely tempted even now to do a crazy deep dive into episode seven of the series where kind of seven out of eight, basically an episode where everything that's been built up over the previous six episodes just unravels in the course of like 17 chaotic minutes all shot with a single camera in a single take. And, you know, look, everyone who sees it is is sort of stunned by it. Um, it's a cinematic tour de force. I can't tell you the number of people who've said to me that it's one of the most riveting, uh, unnerving, and and just simply best episodes of TV they've ever seen. Uh but this one is like it's it, it's totally impossible, I think, to talk about this episode with anybody who hasn't seen it. It just will be it'll be just, you know, so deep in the weeds for anybody listening to this that I think and I also really don't want to spoil it for anybody out there who foolishly hasn't seen the bear yet. So, and if we do start talking about it, there's a chance that we could be here, you know, for like another three hours. So, so, regrettably, from my point of view, um, guys, we could talk about this together in some other setting. Uh, we'll put we'll put a pin in episode seven, and instead, um, I'm going to move on to the finale um, and and another scene that has gotten a ton of attention, uh, which I do want to talk about, which is Jeremy's extraordinary seven minute almost like straight to camera soliloquy, which I think you know, like Jeff Daniels' famous speech in the first episode of the newsroom, which basically won him an Emmy, as he would acknowledge. I think for sure this speech is going to win Jeremy an Emmy. I I'll bet I bet on it now that, that our that our friend Jeremy Allen White's going to get an Emmy. And and not I mean his performance throughout the eight episodes is incredible, but this scene is something. It's just beautifully written. Uh, and it's beautifully acted and 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 sort of gorgeously, very simply shot in a very restrained way. And and while I'm not going to play all seven minutes of it, I will play two minutes of it um, because this is uh, you know the ultimate kind of emotional payoff of the entire show. It's the it brings it's it's where we finally understand uh, what this show really has been all along, which is kind of an emotional mystery. Uh, about Carmi and his relationship with his brother, and why he's doing the things he's doing. and in this moment, he kind of starts to figure it out for himself. Um, so i'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna go along with this. We're gonna play these two minutes, and then we'll talk about it because there there is a lot to say. So here we go.
1: I always thought my brother was my best friend, like like we just knew everything about each other. Except everybody thought he was their best friend you know he was that he was that magnetic and um i didn't know my brother was using drugs what does that say as we got older i I realized i didn't know anything about him really He stopped letting me into the restaurant a couple of years ago. He just cut me off cold. And that, um, that hurt, you know? And I think that just, that flicked this switch in me where I was like, okay, fuck you, watch this. And because we had this connection through food and he had made me feel so rejected and lame and shitty and uncool, I, I made this plan where I was gonna go work in all the best restaurants in the world. You know, like, like I'm gonna go work in real kitchens, like, fuck mom and dad's piece of shit, right? <laughs> and it sounds ridiculous, you know, me saying that now, but that's, that's, that's what I did. And I got the shit kicked out of me. And I separated herbs, and I shucked oysters, and clams, and uni. And I cut myself, and I got garlic and onions and peppers in my fingernails and in my eyes, and my skin was dry and oily at the same time. I had calluses on my fingers from the knives, and my stomach was fucked. And it was everything.
0: I've, like, I've, you know, as I embarrassingly have admitted how many times I've watched the show all the way through, and I still... There's something about that, the combination of the writing and the performance. I get chills now listening to wow. and it's 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 out of it's out of sequence. I mean it's it's just a chunk of it. It's not the beginning or the end. It's like one part that I thought in two minutes might convey the flavor of it. I still get mm. chills. Wow. Because that cool. thing at the end of all oh, this horrible shit happened to me and this was horrible and that was horrible and this was hard and that was hard, and it was everything mm. is like man, it's like, that's part of the ineffability of the show. It's about that, that quest for that, that insatiable quest where we absorb all this punishment. And then and somehow in that, it still is like everything to us. Mm-hmm. And I think almost everybody in the world can relate to it. it has nothing to do with yeah. chefs. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's yeah. perseverance. Yeah.
2: Perseverance. Like, um, yeah. And right back to like, you know, when we were shooting that, I think like the, cause like when we shot that, we didn't even talk that much. I mean, like, it was literally like, the real dream was like, I mean, dude, last it day like, of shooting. Last day of last shooting. Last day of, of that right? shooting
1: in Chicago. Yeah. We last had one day of, more day to shoot with John and.
2: Yeah, LA. it was the last day in Chicago, and it was this thing of like, sort of by design, because I think it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I also think it like did help inform your performance that we were ending here, like you know, in a lot of. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, like, I think it was just like a natural play. Like y- you don't always get to shoot that thing at the end, but I think Tyson Bidner, our producer, made it happened and and we were grateful but i think this thing that happened when we were doing it was kind of like you know in al-anon sometimes they give you a prompt that's before al-anon i you know what that sometimes makes it Mm -hmm. easier to 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 talk about where you were and i think it really was this process of of start figuring this out as you're talking you know because I think a lot yeah. of times you see scenes like these in movies and it, it feels like a mo- and even though this is a long piece of writing like we never wanted it to feel like here mm. is the here is the Emmy clip <laughs> you know what I mean like we never wanted it to, we wanted it to be like this is a man who's really never said any of this out loud and one yeah. thing is just leading to the other to the next the other to the other and in that moment just being like god damn it I really I do love what I do, even though I hate it, and I'm mad at him, but I love him, and I wish he would tell me that I love him. And all of that packaged in this regret of lost time, which I think is really what the show is dealing with. And I think by not cutting out of it, the design was, let's really feel the time. You know, like, let's really feel like we're in this moment.
0: It's fucking Proust. It's Proust, is what it is. But uh, I mean, there's like the meditation on time that's uh, that's so deep in this, and, yeah. and so deep in this whole piece, uh, yeah. and 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 mortality and all that. But but Jeremy, you have this this script from the very beginning, right? It's like it's like your personal Bible for the character. Yeah, you, totally. And you, it informs everything else you shoot up to this moment, right? So just talk about that. What it's like to have a scene you know you're going to shoot at the end that you mm-hmm. know the emotional weight of the whole series is going to sit on. People are waiting for this moment where he's going to crack open and we're going to understand the core emotional mystery that really is what the show's about. Like, yeah. why is this guy here? Why is he doing what he's doing? What is his relationship sure. to his brother? It's all done here. That's like a lot of weight to put on, even a thing this well-written. How are you thinking yeah. about it throughout, the, throughout the, the run-up to it?
1: I mean, I was certainly... I... I was both very excited and and dreadful of that of that last day, but that's that's how it works oftentimes. You've you've got kind of <clears throat> either that scenes on your first day or it's on your last day. You know that's just kind of how it goes. Um, but I felt really lucky because you're absolutely right. It was like uh, it was kind of like a map for 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 Carmen. You know, so I had those. Uh, I think it was about like three pages um, <laughs> ripped out of uh, the script. And in my back pocket for the entirety of uh, of the shoot, and I read it most mornings in my trailer um, before going to set. And I read it uh, even more if I was like just not sure where Carmi was at in a certain scene, or I needed like a little bit of inspiration or guidance into kind of like where where Carmi was at this time. Um, but then, like the real the real like uh, 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 trick and like difficulty into into then shooting it was like chris you're right like it it had to be a discovery for 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 carmen you know i I think it had to kind of be this like this avalanche of like uh of of stuff i think he's he's been kind of trapped in his head for so long not speaking to anybody and so it kind of had to just like pour out of him but he was making discoveries and like learning things as he was as he was saying it um so so there was like a really delicate balance of like Rehearsing it alone in my in my room and memorizing it, but also trying to make it, um, trying to make it like new and and like a discovery, you know.
2: But the other thing we should say, which is kind of interesting, when we shot it, was you know the show, our sound, what our sound team was in, was incredible, John. And often when you would look at them in the restaurant, it was like they were defusing a bomb. Like these guys did the fugitive, and they were yeah. like, "This is." <laughs> So much worse than the fugitive, because you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there's six people screaming at each other and knives, pans, yeah, and knives it. and the pots and the pans and the flames and all that shit. But on the last day, it was really interesting because it was hands down the most quiet, mm. like uh, weirdly quiet, because Jer- everyone had rapped except yep. Jeremy, yeah. and it was this moment where we were like, "Holy fuck, this is like small crew and it's like silent in here," and we shot it. I think four times and I think four times. Yeah, yeah. Of course it was the third one. And like, it was, <laughs> it was this really sort of beautiful way to, to, to end the show. And then we, I think we, we uh, all got back together a week later to shoot with John. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Have you guys, um, uh, I assume you guys have seen, I guess the right question is, are you guys fans of the leftovers?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: So like the, this reminds me most of the Carrie Coon uh, speech at the end in the finale of that of that season, and crazy. the stories cool. of how it was done. It's a very similar yeah. kind of um, has. I mean, obviously, that carries the weight of three years of of emotional burden and uh, three seasons yeah. of it, and 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 a lot of like more um, like uh, spiritual mysteries in a way. Although there's maybe the same spiritual mysteries. Anyway, the, the shooting on the last day with the long uh, 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 soliloquy that uh you know with a essentially the single single camera single cut um yeah. it's, man really <sighs> blue uh, you know no uh, it inc- inc- incredible incredible and it's just incredible piece of work i like i sound like a fucking idiot fan but it's just a really no, tremendous a the combination oh, of the writing and the, really? the right it's just beautifully beautifully executed and and it again at that point, the amount of weight on it is so great that it could easily – just the smallest flaw could make it fall apart and it doesn't yeah. happen. I know. Well, you know, well it was also the up-
2: thing – and Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, but like mm. I, at least from my point of view, the thing that was great was that like it was so mellow. Like that – it was just so mellow and quiet and our crew again, man, was just so beautiful and great that –
1: Yeah, incredible. Yeah, it was – Yeah, there was like a lot of peace – um that day and and there was also like something chris did which was really smart which was like it was never like yes we shot episode seven in one take but chris was never like we're gonna end up using one you know a a most what was it like a minute and a half and then it's like about like six minutes or so yeah yeah um but he didn't he didn't say quite how long they would have used that that one take because i think if he had told me he was planning on that or i don't even know if you were planning on it at the time i I was
2: i always knew i wanted to do it in one i just didn't want to fuck that up but i also but by the way i mean john it was also the thing like when when josh my our producing partner got the dailies he was like and he was on set but he was also kind of running post he was like you can't cut into this dude it, it mm. like because there was a version of the, we're like, let's see what it looks like if you cut, and it fucked it up, and it was mm. terrible.
0: Yeah. I, 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 if we had a lifetime or if we could clone ourselves and we could just keep having this this conversation all day, um, <laughs> we would spend time talking about all of the, you know, tremendous performances from the rest of the cast. We haven't had time for any of that. Io, and Dabiri, uh, an incredible, but just a, a, you know, a, a discovery to a lot of people. She plays Sydney, astonishing. Eben, we've mentioned, um, Abby Elliott, uh, we haven't talked about, she plays Sugar, uh, Carmi's sister. Liza Colenzais, uh, who plays Tina, uh, one of the one of the the, the cooks in the kitchen. Uh, Lionel Boyce, uh, we mentioned Marcus before, the the pastry chef, and you know Molly Ringwald in an extraordinary cameo um, uh, that comes out of nowhere, no one expecting. And there's Molly Ringwald uh, at an Al-Anon meeting, um, uh, bringing back memories of a lot of her old performances uh, and, and what you know. Or hanging around Chicago way back when but you know we will we will focus well when we do our next episode on the bear <laughs> devoted to season two which we inevitably will uh we'll cover all those people it'll just all be about them we'll forget about Jeremy and let him go someplace else uh, and give him the day off uh but but there is there is one actor and there is one last scene that I do want to play a little of um as I say it features another incredible member of the cast and and I'm and I'm just I'm just obsessed with this actor. You're so lucky that he's on here. But I think this scene, uh, it, I didn't realize how it was important was the first time I watched it through. And then the second time I got it more. And now I think it's like there's a Rosetta Stone of shit in here. So this is Carmi and Cicero, uh, aka Uncle Jimmy, mm. uh, played by Oliver Platt. Yep. Uh, key character, only in two episodes of the show, but a key character uh, from whom in the show, Cicero, uh, Uncle Jimmy is the person that Mike borrowed $300,000 from, saying he wanted to franchise the family restaurant, uh, and he never paid it back. Uh, and now he's dead, uh, and the money's still outstanding, and so the loan needs to be repaid. And so Carmi and Richie, uh, to start paying it back, have come to Cicero's house to cater his kid's birthday party. And they've uh, fed them those hot dogs without any ketchup, uh, and accidentally accidentally spiked the punch with Xanax, so the kids have a nice long nap. And then afterwards, afterwards, in the kind of the quiet of the post-party, uh, Carmi has a conversation with uh, Uncle Jimmy uh, Cicero about Carmi's dad Jimmy's brother uh, that turns out to matter a lot so here's a little bit of that talk uh, so you can get to at least hear a little of the amazing Oliver Platt Was the last time you talked to him?
2: Uh,
0: around 20 years ago We had a gnarly fight man. What was it about? A million things You know, drugs, alcohol, gambling, mostly because he just insisted on doing stupid fucking shit all the time. You know, he had a new career, like, every ten minutes. Want to be a broker. And then he, he wanted to be a defensive coordinator. I'm dead serious. And then some asshole invests in Ed DeBevick's, and, you know, suddenly he's a restaurateur. That sounds about right. Yeah. Really stuck your poor mind with that place, man. I mean, don't you find it impossible being in, in there twenty-four hours a day? I—I mean, in there for five minutes, I started thinking about bad shit. Uh, that's probably why I like it so much. I mean, Oliver Platt is just Platt, you know, yeah.
1: legend. Yeah, legend.
0: Um, most—I mean, ele- legend. You think Jeremy—that's that—that's that that's not the word for it that comes to mind for you? I think that, but I don't know if everybody thinks that. No, he's a legend. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. He was somebody I remember like even Koppelman was like, that's so sick that it's – you know, like he was like, man, yeah. when you reveal that it's Platt, it's such a game changer because there's such a humanity to that guy, man.
0: I totally agree. and And the part that I missed the first time watching this was, you know – I didn't get, I mean, it's, I mean, maybe I'm an idiot. The first time I watched it through, I'm like, oh, he's just talking about, he's talking about his relationship to his brother and he's, these. it's the same relationship. He's describing the relationship between Mike and, and Carmen just as playing out in a different generation. Does that, I think a lot of people wonder as we, as now the eyes of the world are on you guys for season two, I know, you you know, you're, I'm sure spend many sleepless nights now thinking, wow, it was great to make this show in anonymity and no one had any (laughs) expectations. People thought, Hey, if it's a nice little successful show about restaurants, that will be cool. And now it's like, Oh, here you go. Eyes of the world are on you motherfuckers. Like, come on, try to, try to match it, try to do better. Will we learn a lot more about the following things? Will we learn a lot more about, about, Mikey's the, the circumstances of Mikey's death. Will that be a thing we will learn a lot more about? You sure do. You do. Will we learn a lot more about uh, some of the family dynamics that Cicero alludes to there uh, with the with uh, with his brother, their father? Yes. Yes, you guys have seen to, to enunciate on the podcast. The, the nod <laughs> is not. <laughs> I was bat.
2: like yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: I, I will not. I will not ask you to. I mean, I will not ask you remotely to give anything away. Will we learn? My friends, I'm not a big like internet rabbit hole diver. Okay. But will we actually ever get a real answer to the question of how that money was left in those tomato cans? And the notion that it's just because there was a canning thing in the kitchen doesn't make any sense, Chris. Like I saw you you bluffed your way through this once in an interview. I'm not gonna accept that. Will we get the actual answer? To how Can the they money see that I'm laughing?
2: <laughs> uh, you, yes, you, you, yes.
0: you perhaps, perhaps it was the best political answer I've ever seen. Somebody asked this question, how did those kids, the money get in the tomato cans? And Chris was like, well, you know, there's a canning thing in the kitchen. And then he was like, you know, there's a lot of places where they have this. You know, it's so funny tools. when we
2: did it and, we- <laughs> and,
0: and, 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 you know, I mean, and people, I, in my research, it's well known that people hide things in tomato cans. And I'm like, you more political reporters need to read this stuff because you that was a non answer, there was no declarative answer to the question, it was just talking around the topic. Well, well there's some chaos in the thing, and
2: well, no, I will say this because the thing that is like important <laughs> to me is that I, I there there is something like fantastic about it, which I think is like really crucial and yeah, there's sure. part of the emotional yeah. release. The one thing I will say is when we were doing it for the show. The ease in which our prop master could do it with one of these machines. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, it actually was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But 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 all that being said, perhaps. But the prop master did not have to worry about all the tomatoes getting rotten later on, which is part of the problem. Correct. And here's the specific internet down the rabbit hole question. Again, I don't normally do this, but. Please. In that scene, in that scene with Cicero and Carmi, we now know, according to the internet, that. Carmi's father, Mike's father. If you look closely on that picture, mm-hmm. he's got a little JBL, uh, KBL uh, mm-hmm. logo on the on the fleece vest. I, mm-hmm. Now I feel like I'm talking about Lost, or like some <laughs> other so we funny. have some other it's fucking. So, it's like, so funny, but is that is that will we find out the answer to that too? See, is you, that really an Easter
2: egg? You hear you you will hear more about it for sure. Yeah,
0: you're confirming now for me in this podcast, newsmaking that that. <clears throat> that that thing on the vest, the little KBL logo, that that is in fact an Easter egg. That's what you're confirming.
2: Oh, I, I but I didn't even think it was an Easter egg. I thought you could see it pretty like, I. we thought it was pretty like- Loud and clear. Yeah, I was like, you well... can see that pretty.
0: <laughs> I, I hate to tell you guys a lot of people are obsessed with your show but they're not generally freeze free No you know what the theory I you gonna... <laughs> picture and looking at the fleece well, vest. I mean, yeah always very clear if you happen to
2: be you know at what that. theory like, I thought you were gonna ask it's like six about pixel,
0: it's like six pixels yeah
2: no dude the John yeah. the one that's going around that Molly Ringwald is the same character from the Breakfast club like a bunch of people started asking <gasps> me about that. oh that's funny then that I was yeah. like whoa
0: wow oh, is that why well, i'd like you to ask you about that on the record now is is that the same character from what was her of name of course, in the course it's not <laughs> no,
2: she's like amazing she's amazing but like my i know role she's amazing like, oh, dude she's the best amazing. and she killed that and we I, she was so good to us she on eighth so grade that it was good, really yeah. fun to, to work with her again
0: she's great in the show she's really great in the show So good here's my last question which because it's the one thing i haven't really asked you about so we're going to learn more about all the shit all the shit that i think we're going to learn more about we're going to learn more about that's great um, you guys stressed? You guys are a little stressed about what's going to come next, right? <laughs> You're like, the stress you know, has started to build yet. When do you go? When do you start? When do you go into production on it?
2: When do we? When do we? When do we? I think it'll be the same time. Same. T- same like time. Februaryish.
0: So Februaryish. Yeah. Um. So that's good. The stress will ruin your holidays for both of you. That's good.
2: You <laughs> know what that's though, time. dude? I mean, like, it's not. We're all really grateful to have this thing, and it's out there, and like, I've obviously now we have like a bar to meet which is cool but part of me is also just like dude we could the first part was so fun to make like if we can keep it fun and I think I had a Joe and I had a pretty good idea what was going to happen in season two before we even started season one so right I don't know. But yes, Will probably you, I'll, I'll call you in a cold sweat and be like, God damn
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think one of the things that's that's worth, one of the things that's worth asking about is whether you, you know, you made this on the uh, fast, right? It was like, go to Chicago, shoot it yeah. fast. Like that's the thing that you do in your first season when like, you don't have time, you don't have money. And then you, we'll the magic that, happens. I'm sure, right?
1: Yes. Will you do be. that?
0: Like try to keep that same vibe of like, shoot I, it fast, get it done. quick. I think it's important.
2: I think it yeah. has to
1: be
0: good i think like yeah, anything's like,
1: part of the storytelling as well it has to be that, that, that it'll, pace.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it'll just go up its own ass too fast but
1: i did text joanna like kind of i don't know if it was like a month ago or so just about about the show and the success and like i feel like my brain has been a bit like infiltrated right like i have my concept of like character i'm not i'm not that nervous like i know you guys are going to you know write yeah. brilliant stuff and 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 we'll we'll do it and it'll be great but I feel like my brain's been infiltrated by like uh, the public in a way, where like I had my understanding of the world and my understanding of the character, and now it's getting like muddied by, um, by people really loving it, which is a weird thing. Because I'm so grateful that that people love yeah. it and people are watching it, but it's 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 a weird it's a weird thing to to talk about it at such length. It, you know, you 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 get insecure, you have questions, you you know, it's a weird thing I haven't quite experienced
0: before. It's bizarre. Uh, it's uh, all I, bizarre. I I said I had the last question. And I will make it this question. Playing Radiohead, playing Let Down in that last episode. Is there a bigger risk you took of all no. the creative risks, no. knowing like what? No, right?
2: No, because I think you explain
0: know, explain why. Because
2: once we shot that thing with John, and I saw it in the monitor, and I could see Jeremy looking at John, and I went home. And we shot it on like a Sunday morning, and you know, again, the thing I'll say about that scene is like. Abby, who also doesn't get enough credit for being like wonderful. It's like Abby yeah. and Jeremy and and Evan had been working together, you know, for for a month and a half already, and John had to come in this one day and sort of just steal this entire show from them in, in yeah, three for hours. Sure. And,
0: Again, Bernthal, uh, We're talking about John Bernthal, Bernthal who's in the show John. in in for like in like one episode, one scene, uh, and his mic. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah. And I think by knowing that we were building to this moment of his brother loved him as much as he said he did want to franchise the restaurant. He was telling the truth. Like, I also think there's something really moving about someone who has, who's going through an addiction and has the disease and no one believes him, but they're actually telling the truth about this one thing. Like he did want to franchise, like he was being honest with, with uncle Cicero and seeing Mm -hmm. Carmi and Mike look at each other and hearing that song when we put it in temp because again Radiohead's the greatest band of all time and I know that that's insane but there was something about it that didn't feel insane and I was like I think, I think it's okay I don't know but I think it's okay um, and uh, it was definitely scary but I think it was definitely the right move for that scene and the tone and also everything's probably a little bit better, but still not okay. And there still is some disappointment and there still is some resentment, but there Mm. is a touch of closure and there is a touch of feeling his brother from in a way that he hadn't before. And, um, it felt okay is the best way. I felt like I wasn't going to get in too much trouble for that.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, Jeremy, do you, do you, I just want to, on a factual basis, do you, is it your view that, is it your view that Radiohead is the greatest band of all time also? So are you going to take that, that position? I'd be on,
1: I'd be on board with Greece Band, yes. But um, I do want to ask Chris about a moment that I just haven't asked you about yet. Like, I remember, so the, the very end of the show, after the looks, family meal, right? I remember Io and I had a really hard time with that with that we wanted to we were like asking like where are we gonna sit it's really important And you got you were just like sit down and (laughs) that scene was added like later on and in the moment i was like i don't know like does this make sense like are these people all around and then after watching it i was like it's not even it's like it's another dream sequence it's another it's a feeling it's not it's it might not even be real is that how it should be sort of interpreted and watching it. It's it's not real. It's just like the feeling and a release that Carmi has kind of at the end. The vibe. It should feel the like season.
2: the intent of that was like the way a memory can sometimes feel. Right. Like when we shot right. John talking to Abby in Carmi and Eben, it's like Eben's interpretation of what that felt like and this is like Carmi's interpretation of a family. Right. And like right. sitting there right. and it's like yeah. the right. real thing, the real reason I think I that letdown felt right was that there's something calm about it for a second and it's this moment that we're ending this chapter of the show in in a pretty yeah. normal, quiet memory, which I think is what everyone's right. after.
0: Well, yeah. I would say I will say these following things. One I don't think Radiohead is the greatest band of all time, and and we can pick that up later. We, we have another discussion. But I but I have I have respect for Radiohead as a great mm-hmm. band. Number one, yeah. The song is you know if you are a Radiohead fan is, is let down as you know in that pantheon of like three or four Radiohead songs that everybody cares about if they love Radiohead. And Radiohead fans are intense. Like Radiohead doesn't license their stuff very much. You know, occasionally you hear something in, in Peaky Blinders, but not very much else that they let out. So you see a radiohead song and if you if you didn't stick the landing the abuse you would take from radiohead fans would probably be life ending right i've
2: avoided looking into it i hope they were okay with it i think it's been all
1: right yeah from from what i understand <laughs> it has
0: it has certainly been okay it's been more than all right but i would say that in addition to the fact that it's worked out well the song works brilliantly you took the big swing you hit the home run I also just man, you did a great job. You know who knew Chris Store, music supervisor, going through making hey, all man. the calls, necessity, necessity calls. You know you got to be fast. Uh, <laughs> necessity, mother of invention, all of that. All apparently, of it, man. it
2: was a great time. Also, it was a really great way to be editing the show because, like you know, it was so like you know I-, I would be directing and then cutting, and then Joanna would be doing her things while we were cutting, and I think it honestly it saved it saved a lot of time and it it just made it easy and and Josh and I had a lot of fun doing it
0: well I know you have said that it's not that you weren't aiming for like and it's not obviously not all Chicago you know you've got you know there's the there's John Mayer in there and there's uh I it was I thought the the John Cougar Mellencamp poll was great and um yeah you know, Van Morrison's got nothing to do with Chicago. Although anybody who can make Saint Dominic's Preview work the way it does beautifully—it's the, uh, the again, live version
2: I'm... only, man. Yeah, of course. Yes,
0: I know that's correct. That's the correct choice. Unlike yeah. your view about Radiohead being the greatest band of all time, there is only one version of Saint Dominic's Preview. and It's the live one from It's Too Late to Stop Now, which was your choice. Well done. Yeah. But you also got the Breeders on there, and like, there's oh, like a lot of very, very deep breeders. Chicago Kim shit Deal. going there's
2: on. There's another there. Kim Deal song in there that's great too. I love the Oh, I know. and the Breeders so much. Uh,
0: I know. Um, and
2: there are people out
0: there. <laughs> there are people out there just by the way, the Pixies are touring again. There's people out there who are like, hey man, the Pixies are touring and I'm going, the, I, I, the Pixies without Kim Deal are not the Pixies. I can't go see that band. Yeah. Listen, you guys, um, you're generous and, and nice to spend the time and also to, um, to uh, tolerate uh, my fan boy geeking out on the no, show. I'm happy to be here, man. I'm,
1: Please, yeah, thank
0: you, man. I stand by my position that no one with a head and a heart can watch the bear and not end up a fan. That's my view. anybody, <laughs> well, anybody, if, if you don't like this show, that you're you're either dead
2: <laughs>
0: or brainless or soulless. One or the other. That's it. It's the only there you go. That's been
2: said. That means a lot, man. And we you, appreciate John. you being the, the the first hype man for the show. We won't forget it.
1: Yeah, you spearheaded it. Thank you,
0: man. Thank you, guys. See you later, Jeremy, Chris. Take care. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jeremy Allen White and Chris Storer of The Bear the bear for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman, Grace Weinstein. This is co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz as our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Zoya Soroy, our researcher, and the one and only, the truth, the light, the heat, the man. Marshall Eisen, our executive producer.